Our Father, the songs that we sing give expression, I trust, to the affections of our heart. And even that final song before the throne of God, so full of theology and yet so expressive of affection. And that's how it works. The more we know of you, the more our hearts are excited in the knowledge of you, to love you, to serve you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We do pray that you would stir up in us affections for Christ Jesus, which includes emotions, but is more than emotions. It is emotions attached with conviction and faith that holds on even when the emotions fade away. They are, in fact, that spiritual reality within your children that holds on and loves and longs for your glory and seeks you with a whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are enabled to do this and desire to do this only because of the work of the Spirit within us. And so it is by you, Holy Spirit, that we ask you would come and attend your word with power, bless us with an understanding of the truth and a sight by faith of the glory of Christ and instructions from your voice in the written word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. As we're going to be looking this morning at verses 2, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we're coming into the second part of what was begun last week. Namely, where we looked at the fruit of obedience to the truth of repentant faith in Christ. Namely, a love for the brethren, a love for the church. Something that he's going to explode next week in the following verses, beginning in verse 4. And this morning we look at the second half of that. Namely, the longings of our heart related to our salvation and our faith in Christ. Let me begin this section and just introduce us this, uh, the thought here uh, with this reminder. That we are complex creatures, aren't we? We are complex creatures. We are creatures with complexities of thoughts, desires, motivations, and acts that sometimes are mysterious to even ourselves as we try to understand ourselves oftentimes with confusion. Proverbs tells us that the thoughts of a man are very deep. And even the Apostle Paul could not uh, determine absolutely everything that went on in his inner man. He said his conscience doesn't accuse him of anything, and yet by that he's not acquitted. But it is the Lord who judges him, the Lord who knows his motives perfectly. And though that's the case, yet most fundamentally true, what is fundamentally true about us and the most telling reality about us is this. What are our deepest desires? What are our deepest desires? What is it that we want more than anything, and what is it that we pursue? Again, Proverbs tells us that out of the heart, you know the rest of it, flow the issues of life. Everything flows out of our heart. And Jesus put it this way, where your treasure is, there where your heart be also. So, one of the most piercing questions for us to answer about ourselves is this. What do you most want? What do you most desire? And the matter is more complex than we think. Because in some kind of ways, and in many ways, our wants and desires are a matrix in and of themselves. For example, if someone is born again, has received new life in Christ, then the truest and deepest reality in your heart and in your soul is that you love God. That you love Him and you trust Him and that you want to obey Him. 
And yet, within that, within the true child of God, there's also the reality of remaining sin with all of its attendant competing desires and reasonings and actions and habits. And so there's a conflict. There's a certain inconsistency even within Christians about what we want and what we are pursuing. And in fact, our habits play a crucial role in shaping our desires and working towards conformity to Christ. Those things that produce in us godliness and wisdom and holy affections and a love for God and a love for others. And then there's those habits of our life that work against this work of the Spirit and that can make us complacent with sin. Make us complacent with disobedience and ungodliness and foolishness and Ultimately, that would produce anxiety, fear, anger, pride, and so forth. So Peter is this morning, in this section that we'll look at, going to address our deepest longings. What should be, and in fact really must be, the longings of every Christian, of everyone who is in Christ. What is it that should shape and should motivate and should direct our lives? And so that's what he's going to address this morning. Now, as I already mentioned last week in verse 22, as he's applying our hope in Christ, the wonders and greatness of our salvation, he noted that in obedience to the truth, we purified ourselves for a sincere love of the brethren. And the command here in that section from 22 to 25 is love one another, love one another fervently, love one another from the heart, love one another unhypocritically. That should be the mark of our lives as the people of God. And now as He's going to address something else, the longing that salvation should produce in our hearts. How we are to respond to remaining sin and what is to define the deepest and the truest things within us that we want. He says in verse 3, before we read the passage, that he's making this command to those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. These are those, as he mentioned earlier, who have been born again by the Spirit of God. So he's addressing those who have truly come to know Christ by faith. Let me read our our section here. Actually, I'm going to begin in chapter 1, verse 22, and we'll read the whole section uh, together here. So chapter 1, 22, down to chapter 2, verse 3. And then we'll look at it more closely. Verse 22, Since you have an obedience to the truth... Purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisies and envies and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, the main idea of this section is this. Simply, salvation demands and stirs in the true child love for the brethren and a desire for spiritual growth. Love for the brethren and a longing to grow in Christ's likeness. 
Now, Peter's going to address this in two ways uh, this morning, and we'll just divide it up in two simple ways, uh, only two points. One is that we are to put off sinful corruptions of the heart, and we are to put on longings for Christ. Put off the sinful corruptions of the heart and put on longings for Christ. Let's look at the first one. Putting off sinful corruptions of the heart. Uh, Look again at verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisies and envy and all slander. Obviously, what, is, what do you ask when you see a therefore? What's the therefore, therefore, right? He's connecting this to the previous section. He's applying it. He's, he's continuing the thought. He's advancing on what he has just laid down. And namely, this, he's establishing here that this is the proper response to the truth just stated. Namely, that as a consequence of our repentant faith, being born again, loving the brethren... We are to long for the pure milk of the word. So in this section, there's two commands. Love the brethren and long for the pure milk. Long for the pure milk. In other words, he's establishing that in order for there to be a true love for the brethren, there needs to be a laying aside of everything in our hearts, our affections, and our lives that hinders a true, spirit-produced, self-denying love for the brethren. Love for other Christians. Yeah, it applies broadly to all people, but specifically, as we noted before, he is focusing on that unique love of the family of God for one another, those who are indwelled by the Spirit. And so this is the negative side, then, of the command to those who have purified their souls and to love the brethren. It's the negative side of it. And note what he says at first. He says, you're putting aside all of these things that he's going to list. You put it aside or you lay it aside. The idea is taking off and removing from you. It's the idea, if you want it in just a practical use of that term, it's like those who took off their robes when uh, they were going to stone Stephen and they laid them at the feet of then Saul, who would later be the Apostle Paul. They were laying aside their, their garments And it's used that way sometimes, but most often this term is used to speak of putting off sin, putting off those things in the life of a believer that characterized life outside of Christ, life apart from the Spirit, life outside of salvation, life outside of the experience of the new birth. And it's really a a pretty striking imagery because it is so common. As we lay aside our clothes every day to change, we take off our old clothes and we put on new clothes. At night, we take off our clothes from the day and we put on our pajamas, most of us, hopefully. Or you sleep in your clothes, I don't know. But commonly, we take off clothes and we put on new. You don't wear the same thing every day. And so it is in the Christian life. We put off the things that characterized our old life and we put on the things that characterize or should characterize the new life that are consistent with our faith in Christ. And I want to make just a few observations before we get in here. Note here when he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisies, envy, and slander. This is something that we must do. This is an obedient act of faith. It's the obedience that faith must produce. It's a reminder to give a big picture here that regeneration, salvation, the indwelling Holy Spirit, he does two things primarily in the life of a genuine believer. One is when we have the Holy Spirit in salvation, he removes or he destroys the enslaving power of sin in the life of his children. 
If you are a Christian, you are not enslaved to sin. You sin and you're going to sin until glory, but you're not enslaved to it. It is not master over you. It does not control you. It should not control you. And the Spirit does another thing. He frees us from the enslaving power of sin and He produces in us the promptings of faith and of righteousness. So that's all part of the glories of the new covenant. The Spirit of God coming and dwell, the people of God, freeing them from the enslaving power of sin, uniting them to Christ, producing in them a desire for righteousness, giving them a foretaste of the glories to come and the life to come, conforming them more and more into the image of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. However, the Holy Spirit does not obey for us. The obedience of faith is our obedience. Faith is a gift, but we obey. Faith is also something that we exercise. We must obey the commands of Scripture. We must put off the sin that characterizes our old life. So again, the gift and the blessing of the new covenant is complete forgiveness of sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables obedience to all who belong to Christ. But we must obey We must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's Romans 8. So, an essential reality of salvation and union with Christ by the Spirit is this. To be in conflict with sin. To be in conflict with sin. So Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5.17. The Spirit sets his desires against the flesh so that you may not do the things that you please. So that you may not do the things that you please. There is a battle within every believer. And so it's to put off these things characteristic again of life without Christ, without the Spirit, without love for God, without love for holiness, truth, and without the hope of the gospel. And he gives this command repeatedly in Scripture. I'm not going to read all of these. Let me just read one that you'll be familiar with. In Ephesians 4.22, he applies these great glories of the gospel. He says this, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside, same idea, the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And he repeats that command in several other places. We lay aside what is old and we put on what is new. New life in Christ seeks to shed the death of the old man. And in fact, if you are in Christ, though you sin... And though in that moment you think that you love sin and it will do you good, you in fact hate its deceiving power. And you hate its corrupting power. Let me give you just one passage here. Here's Paul's attitude towards it in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That is the cry of the believer. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And so we are engaged in a process of putting to death sin, rejoicing that we have no condemnation in Christ, rejoicing that we're not enslaved to sin, rejoicing in the hope that is ours guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet battling with sin. And so that's what Peter is addressing here. We are, as those who have been born again, those who are in Christ, to put aside sin, the remaining sin in our life. And so he describes it in this way. Put aside all malice or wickedness and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and evil speech or slander. Again, each of these are remaining expressions of sin and evil in our heart. And the idea and the reason that he singles these out is because these are sins that are particularly destructive to the unity of the body. 
that are particularly destructive to our exercising a love for the brethren, our love for one another. Each of these are tools of our enemy Satan to destroy the work of God and the testimony of Christ among his people. Each of these are the kind of sins that destroy friendships, that destroy marriages, that destroy unity within congregations. They are destructive. The the end of them is only destruction. There's nothing good that comes out of these things. And we are to recognize them and we are to put them aside. And they are also the things then that destroy, destroy within us and dull within us those holy affections that produce spiritual growth. Let me just put it this way. Sin and joy in Christ, sin and holy affections cannot abide together at the same time. And when I say sin, I mean known sin, willful sin. They cannot abide at the same time. And so this is what he is addressing for us. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Before I do, let me just mention one other thing. That there are, of course, other things. This isn't a comprehensive list. This isn't every possible thing that destroys our longing or our unity. There's a lot of other things that destroy that. Namely, spiritual death. Not being alive in Christ. So somebody who knows these things are in their life and has at peace with them, then it is very likely that's a testimony against them that there is no spiritual life. Unbelief. Ignorance can cause a dulling of our affections as well. And that's even among believers who are simply ignorant of the sufficiencies and the glory of God in Scripture and never really rise above the superficial and the basics of the Christian life. And they always kind of lay, uh, continue on in this sort of spiritual infancy. Those are all things that also work against these longings and this kind of unity. But the list of sins mentioned here is comprehensive in the sense of its principal sins of the heart. There are a thousand and one manifestations of these sins, but these are at the heart of them all. And particularly those things that destroy unity. And keep us from doing what he just commanded to love one another fervently from the heart. Second observation, and I promise this is the last one, before we look at this list. Just consider it. Notice what he says here. Look, look at verse 1. Just, just notice here. What word does he repeat three times? Do you see it? What word does he repeat three times? Yeah, he repeats the word all. He repeats the word all. What is, why does he do that? Why does he do that? It's simply this. is He's reminding us in, in that in that description of the comprehensive nature of our dealing with sin. In other words, we can't deal with these things half-heartedly and superficially. We must deal with these kind of sins thoroughly and completely. Thoroughly and completely. And he's driving that point home. It's really a reflection in some ways of what he heard Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount. That we are to cut off our hands and we are to pluck out our eyes. In other words, take sin Seriously, in that case, sexual lust, but it can apply to many other things as well. So, as we consider these sins, we must deal with them as thoroughly and completely as our conscience bears witness to them in our hearts, our conscience aided by the Holy Spirit. We should pray regularly, search me, O God, and see if there be any hurtful way within me. Know my anxious thoughts. And lead me in the everlasting way. So what are these sins here then uh, that we need to be aware of in our own heart? 
Uh, Let's just look at them briefly one by one. He says, putting aside what? Putting aside all malice or wickedness. The term that he uses here can be used to trouble in general, but most often when it's used in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, almost consistently, it speaks of, it's a, or it's a term that's used of, that makes a moral or spiritual evaluation. In other words, it refers to what is unholy, evil, and fundamentally contrary to what is good. In specific Acts, and in Acts chapter 8, 22, it refers to Simon's, the magician's desire, the sorcerer's desire to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. And Peter says, put this wickedness, same term, away from you. Put it away from you. In 1 Corinthians 5, 8, it refers specifically to the immoral man who had his father's wife and needed to be put out of the fellowship of the church. But here, it's translated often malice. Or it's sometimes wickedness, but malice by the New American Standard and the English Standard and those of you of the KJV, the King James Version. Because Peter is specifically referring to those kind of sins, that kind of attitude, base attitude that causes breakage within the community of the people of God. In other words, it's, it's malice because it's referring to those deeds that have the attention and or at least the effect of destroying unity. The idea here is of the sort of attitude and deeds of spite, revenge, hatred, anger, disdain, animosity, all of those things that are contrary to the command to love one another. You could even really think of this as almost like a categorical sin that the other ones are more specific. Like this is just sort of the category, like all wickedness, all malice, all of those things contrary to the unity of the body and to true love. And so he says, put away all malice and all deceit. Put away all deceit. This relates to the commandment not to bear false witness. Do not bear false witness. Deceit is really a form of lying. It's a form of lying. And notice that in these things, he's getting down to the motives. Down to the motives. Deceit is at the heart of everything that Satan, who's referred to the father of lies, that he does. And his children want to follow his course. But it is not so with us. It's not so with us. And so this is really then, however, a heart issue. He's not, again, I don't want us to focus just on actions. Of course, every action that we do flows out of the heart. This is a heart issue. It addresses our motives. Let me, let me then maybe go a little bit deeper than just saying don't lie to one another and ask this question, why do we lie to one another? Why would we deceive one another? Why would you even be tempted to do that? Let me give three reasons. And this is, identifying these is how we begin to deal with the root of sin, not just the, the actions. One is we deceive one another sometimes to hide sin, don't we? Sometimes we deceive one another to hide sin. We cover over what we know is really in our hearts because we don't want to be exposed. Sometimes, secondly, we deceive one another to commit sin, to gain some kind of advantage with someone, to use them to get our own way or to commit sin in any of its various forms. Sometimes we deceive one another. We're tempted to do that as a means of self-protection. And again, that would go with hiding sin. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to, be, uh, we don't want to have to acknowledge some way that we may have disobeyed. And fourth, we do that sometimes to manipulate. 
So really behind this sin of deceit, there are a whole cauldron of motives that cause us to want to hide our true intentions and the reality of who we are. It's the exact opposite of Christ. As a matter of fact, he's going to say over in verse 22 of chapter 2, referring to Christ, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was the way and the life and the truth. It's the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite of the word of truth. And so this is a sin that we need to look at and that we are to put away. That we are to put away. If we are not living in truth before one another with an openness and an honesty, then it's going to destroy our fellowship. It's going to destroy the closeness and the unity that we are to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it also is going to pollute the conscience and torment the conscience of a true believer. And so deceit destroys all of those things. You cannot have a true relationship or a deep relationship with someone where there's not complete honesty and where there's not complete openness. And so we need to put those things away. And the opposite of that then is we need to walk in truth. We need to walk in truth. And true love demands then that we don't deceive one another. Next he says, you put away all malice and all wickedness, all deceit and hypocrisy. Now just notice here as an observation that he, he says all. You might go, well, why isn't there all kinds of hypocrisy? And aren't there all kinds of envy and slander? Why doesn't he use that term all here? And the reason is simple. It doesn't come in in translations. And I'm not quite sure why they didn't translate it this way. But actually those two nouns are put in are plural. In other words, more accurately, it would be put away all wickedness or malice, all deceit and hypocrisies and envies. In other words, hypocrisy and envy in all of its forms, in all of its manifestations. God calls us then, the idea here is to love not merely in words and deed and affection, but with our whole person. We noticed that before. He already said that. For a sincere love of the brethren. Now remember, and this is my reminder is that God is ultimately concerned with the motives of our heart. He's ultimately concerned with the motives of our heart. It's not just a loving action that God is calling us to, but to a loving action that truly has as its end the glory of God and the service of someone else for their good and for their benefit. It's not merely the action, but the motive of the heart that God will examine. And just as a side note here, this is why... That's for us to examine within ourselves. That's not what we determine of someone else. Okay, let me just remind you of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4 where he says, don't go on judging motives, basically because we don't know the motives and the intentions of another person, but each motive will be judged by Christ on that day. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So that's not our job, but we are for others, but it is within ourselves to always be aware of why are we doing what we are doing. Now, why would he need to say this? Why would he have to tell us this? He's writing to Christians, isn't he? Isn't it something they already know? Yes, we know it. But our hearts have an amazing capacity for hypocrisy, don't they? They have an amazing capacity for hypocrisy and envy. Amazing capacity to do good things with self-centered rather than Christ-centered and other-centered motives. We have an amazing ability to rationalize doing things to please men rather than Christ. And so we need to be aware of these hypocrisies that can so easily bind our hearts. So it's a call again to examine our hearts, to be ruthlessly honest. We have an amazing ability with these hypocrisies as well 
to think that in doing the things that we do, that somehow we're establishing our own righteousness too. And that's the kind of hypocrisy that he had to deal with the leaders on as well, among others. And so he says we need to put those things away. We need to know what our motives and our hearts are. We need to be ruthlessly honest. We need to ask the Spirit to aid us. And we need to be willing to put off any hypocrisies that we find out of fear of God and love for Christ. Next he says put away envies. Put away all envies. Again, he's focusing on the heart. This relates to the command, do not covet. Do not covet. Wanting something that God hasn't given that belongs to someone else is essentially the idea. Being discontent and unsatisfied with what you have, wanting what somebody else's has, what somebody else has. As a matter of fact, this was the sin, you'll remember, that really pierced the Apostle Paul with all of his religious righteousness. He says in Romans 7, 7, it was the command when it was awakened to him by the Spirit of God, do not covet, that he realized produced in him coveting of all kinds. And it was the command that he heard that he said he died. It killed him. He realized that cut down to the motive of everything that he did. Now, what is outside of Christ? Now, essentially, envy could be described in this way. Ill will toward another for some real or perceived advantage. Toward someone who has something you want or that you may think you deserve more. This could be material. It could be in terms of honor and recognition. It could be in terms of a relationship It could be in terms of opportunities in life. It could be in terms of abilities. There's a whole host of ways that we can envy one another. And it's a terrible sin. And it's at the root of so much bitterness and hypocrisies and failures to serve and anger and gossip and even violence. And it happens among the religious all the time. All the time. Of course, we see that throughout the Gospels. Herod, when Christ was being delivered up to him, when Christ was being delivered up to him, knew that Scripture says that the reason was the leaders had turned on Christ and to have him crucified was because of envy. They were envy. Well, you go, well, those were unregenerate religious leaders. Those were the ones who were the workers of Satan. Well, Paul suggests that this could also happen in the lives of believers who are preaching the gospel uses the same term in Philippians chapter 1. And he says that some are seeking to cause him harm even in his imprisonment. That they're speaking against the Apostle Paul, somehow trying to lay evil motives on him and his imprisonment as some discipline of God for his sinful motives in ministry. And he says, they even seek to cause me harm. They exalt themselves. He says, they're preaching from wrong motives. If that can happen, even within the church, if someone who's preaching the gospel, even against such a beloved apostle, then that is certainly a sin that we need to be aware of among our, in our own hearts. The sin of envy. The sin of envy. It runs exactly the opposite, the direction of love. It's a tool of Satan, again, to manipulate the weakness of our flesh. It destroys friendships. It destroys marriages. It destroys fellowship. And it robs us of joy and usefulness in the kingdom. Envy. Do you have envy in your heart towards anyone? Do you? Now, obviously, only you can answer that. Do you have someone that you secretly loathe or have a kind of animosity, no matter how much subtle it might be, towards someone because they have what you want? Because they've been given opportunities that you haven't been given? God has put a blessing on their life? 
Again, we, it's, easy to, it's easy to not envy somebody who has something more that's not in your category. In other words, I don't envy Michael Jordan because of his basketball skills. That is not the world I live in. I can look at that and appreciate it because I have no connection to it at all. But it's something different if it's a pastor who maybe goes to a church and it grows faster. And it gets more blessing in terms of numbers and external things. Well, that's going to be more of a temptation in my heart. That might be with you at work. You don't really envy some necessarily the CEO. You have no connection to that, unless you are, but you have no connection to that. But how about somebody who works on your floor and with your level who receives promotion and praise that you thought you deserved and that you wanted? You see, that's where it connects and touches to us, and that can happen within our hearts in a variety of ways. And so he's telling us we need to be aware of the kind of envies that might exist in our heart that destroy and that keep us from loving the brethren as we ought to. And to loving each other as we ought to. He notices next. And so the answer to that is just self-denying love. A love for Christ. A submission to his will. Understanding the promises of God. Having a biblical worldview. Let me me move on. Note lastly what he says. All evil speech and slander. And here just as the idea of speaking against one another. Speaking against one another. Includes the idea of gossip. Speaking negatively for someone to tear them down. Gossip usually happens secretly and subtly. We, we do that on our phones all the time. That was humor. So it is any speech, any speech that does not have as its end to build up another. Any speech or habits of speech that belittle, demean, slander, destroy, any words that do not build up. So these are the things, he says, that we are to put off. We are to know what is in our hearts. We are to recognize them as destructive to the purposes of God. And we need to put them off. We need to deal with sin. And again, I want to emphasize, notice here that each one of these addresses what's going on inside of us. Envy is something you may have that nobody else knows. Deceit is something you may do that nobody else is aware of. Hypocrisy is something that may be evident in your life that everybody else thinks is great. You see, these are things that then you must do, we must individually do to examine our hearts. And we must do them for the end and the goal of being faithful to Christ and to love the brethren. And if you are a Christian, then the Holy Spirit convicts you of these sins. Then the Holy Spirit convicts you of these sins. And he makes known to you in a variety of ways, whether it be through trials that cause us to know what's really going on in our heart, whether it be through the mere conviction as as we read Scripture and we, we hear His Word and we're convicted of areas of our lives, whatever way He might do it, the Spirit of God sets Himself against these sins in our lives and we need to follow His lead, as it were, and address them. Now let's go to the positive side, putting on spiritual longings. We need to put off this sin. We need to love the brethren and pursue our love from the brethren. Pursue our life in Christ by putting off these sins. But then he goes in number two, and this is really at the heart of it all. We are to put on spiritual longings. And so he says in verse two, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So again, the end and the purpose of putting away these things and dealing with sin is this, that your spiritual longing, your spiritual appetite, your hunger for spiritual food would not be hindered, stunted, or weakened. That's the goal. 
That's the idea. Put away these things because these kill the work of God in your heart and instead pursue those things that the Spirit of God is working towards, namely spiritual growth, truth, Christ-likeness. And again, it's only when we're dealing with these things that we prove the reality of the spiritual life to begin with. Let's just consider this. Look what he says, like newborn babes. Newborn babes. Why does he use newborn babes here? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is it picks up on what he just said in verse 23. He says, you have been born again. You have been born again. You have received a birth from God that has produced life in you. In other words, you are those who are in Christ, the child of God. You have received of his nature. You have been given a new nature, one that is, 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 is like that of Christ whose life we share as newborn babes, as newborn babes. It's another way of saying children of God, children of God in terms of its spiritual reality. And he identifies this as those then who have life are the only ones then who will experience the ability and even the desire to obey this command. Now let me just note here, some take newborn babes, Peter's usage here, as referring to those who are kind of new believers. So, so some would, be, would explain it this way, that these are newborn babes in this way, that they are new believers in Christ. They are young in the faith. They are spiritual infants. Uh, however, that's not how he's using it here. That's not how he's using it here. The description is simply to identify those who have spiritual life and will have then its fruit of spiritual longing. Of spiritual longing. This, this is something, what he's saying here, that is applied to us as Christians at every phase of spiritual life. In other words, as a newborn babe long for the pure milk of the word, as just as true of a mature Christian as it should be of a new believer. In fact, a mature Christian should experience this to an even greater degree because their knowledge of the glories of Christ are even greater than those of when we first come to faith. So the idea here isn't to mark out the spiritual maturity of the readers or of us. It is to provide an illustration for the command. An illustration for the command. It's a metaphor. It, it, shows, us, it shows us in a word picture, in imagery, the kind of longing that we are to have for spiritual growth. The kind of intensity and inward craving that a Christian is to have for that which will produce a greater knowledge of Christ. To be likened to a newborn babe then is to say that this desire is to be persistent, it is to be single-minded, and it is to be intense. And there's really probably no greater imagery that he could have used to picture the idea of longing than a hungry newborn who wants to be fed. Now, if you don't have children, then that's maybe not as clear to you. Those of you who have children understand that completely. There's, there's, there's this persistent and constant and single-minded desire to get food that is true of every infant. And it's, it's, it's demonstrated in sort of that gentle action of an infant. Uh, Trish used to call it rooting, in which it's just looking for food, looking for food. And then there's that that intense cry that comes when food has been withheld and the true nature and intensity of their desire to eat is shown by a loud, insistent, and determined cry that will not be abated until it's satisfied. 
It will not be a lesson until it gets what it wants, namely food. And so it's a strong desire here. And in fact, when that term for long is sometimes and most often or often translated as lust. Lust, it's the same term that's behind it. The term itself simply speaks of strong desire. The context determines whether it's a lust, it's a desire for something that is sinful, or whether it's a desire for something good. Here it's a desire for something good. But it's that same term. It speaks of a strong desire, and here it is that desire to grow in the grace of salvation. He says there's a long for milk is how he pictures this. Milk. Now let me just make a, a note here again. That milk, as you might be familiar with, is sometimes used in Scripture to speak of the simple gospel truths. In other words, it's used to speak of those things that are basic to coming to faith in Christ, but that don't represent those deeper and more comprehensive and fuller truths of the gospel that cause spiritual maturity. And we won't turn there for time's sake, but he uses it that way. Well, actually, I will turn to one passage in Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, It's close. Let me just read it to you of how this is sometimes used. He says, though by this time, he's speaking to the second generation believers. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And so he's using it in that term in in a negative sense. And he's saying milk is for babies. You as a Christian as you grow need solid food. You need to mature. Your thinking needs to grow deeper. Your understanding of the gospel needs to grow deeper. Your understanding of salvation needs to grow deeper. You should be growing. But that's not how Peter is using it here. That's not how he's using it here. He's using it here to refer to that spiritual Food that will produce spiritual growth. Now, let me make a couple comments here. And I won't get bogged down on this, but you need to be aware of it. Uh, especially if you have some different translations. In the New American Standard, what, let me first ask this. Specifically, then, what is it that we're commanded to, be long, to, to long for? What is it that we're commanded to long for? If you have a New American Standard, it says, long for the pure milk of the word. If you have a King James version of the Bible, it says long for the pure milk of the word in its own King James language. And it says the same thing, actually, if you went to the Geneva Bible, a little bit older. It says long for the pure milk of the word, and yet next to it, you probably have a marginal note. If you have an English standard version, an ESV, or an older version, like, say, the ASV 1901, it's translated as this, simply as spiritual milk. Spiritual milk, and yet it will also have a marginal note. And if you go back even further to the douay Reims translation, it says the rational milk without guile. So what is it? What is it? Well, the first part of the statement is pretty straightforward. Like newborn babes were to long for the pure milk, for the pure milk. And it means simply there is unadulterated, pure, without guile. It translates the term that just previously was deceit. This is a form of that word that says without deceit. You put a little A in front of it and it means it negates it. So we're to put off deceit. And he says, and the word is undeceitful. It's without guile. It's totally true and open. That's what the word is. It's pure. But it's the second part that's a little more difficult. It's the translation of a term, logikos. That's not so important just to make you aware of it. 
And the phrase of the word is actually not in the text. It's it's not a literal translation. It is instead an inference from the context. It's an inference. And so of the word is added to try to get to the idea of that term I just mentioned, but that's not a translation of that term. As a matter of fact, it's used only one other time in the New Testament, in Romans 12.1, and there it's translated as spiritual or reasonable in different translations, describing the kind of worship that is to be expected from those who've experienced the glories of salvation. So what is it? How are we to understand this? And this is largely just for your awareness. Well, actually, both are supported by the context. If you want to take it simply as spiritual or reasonable milk, and then but say that what he's really referring to is the word, well, that makes total sense because that's everything he's just focused on. He just said that you've purified your souls in obedience to the truth. The truth there being another term for the gospel. The gospel being the message that was preached to them back in verse 12 of chapter 1. The message by which you've been born again. That he just said in verse 23 that he compares compares to the eternal nature of scripture. Quoting from the Old Testament. And then again he says the word which was preached to you. So it makes total sense to understand this as the spiritual milk of the word. But then he also says right after following this. That we're to come to him as living stones. We'll look at that next week. Build up into a spiritual house. We're offering spiritual sacrifices. And this is in direct connection with that for which we are to long and to apply ourselves. Namely, to be growing as that spiritual house and offering spiritual sacrifices. So it it could be taken either way. And, and I think, and I'm not alone in this, of course, but that the term that he used, he could have usually easily used a term that said word, and he could have u- easily used a term that said spiritual. But he didn't. He used this other term that really can capture in the context both ideas, and I think that that's on purpose. Certainly it's on purpose by the Holy Spirit who inspired it, but even for Peter, it was on purpose to use this word because both ideas are captured. The best translation is probably to leave it this way. Like newborn babes long for the pure, for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you might grow in respect to salvation. But the intention here is very clearly a focus on the gospel of Christ. That is what is believed. That is Christ who is longed for and he is revealed in scripture. This is the word preached It's the now completed New Covenant Scriptures. It's the pure spiritual milk of the gospel of Christ as revealed in the Word of God. That's how he would take it. The pure spiritual milk of the gospel of Christ as it is revealed in the Word of God. This is the message that we've believed, embraced, obeyed, and loved. It is in the Word of God and in this message of Christ that has revealed all of the glories and the wonders and the instructions of our salvation. So put another way, what is he commanding us? He's commanding us this, that spiritual reality demands and compels us to long for spiritual growth in Christ, to long to hear his voice in the word of scripture, to long for the knowledge of God in Christ as he's revealed on the pages of scripture. He's commanding us to spiritual longing, spiritual growth that cannot be separated from scripture. So, it's nothing wrong then here to say the pure spiritual milk of the word. The spiritual nature of the word is received in the regenerate heart as spiritual food. 
It's what stirs up our spiritual appetite. It's what satisfies our spiritual desires as it leads us always to Christ and His glory. It's what informs and shapes the spiritual mind. It is what the spiritual man, where he sees and he hears and he knows more of the voice of Christ on the pages of Scripture and of the glory of God. It's in the pages of Scripture that we know of His promises, that we know of His works, that we know of His wisdom, that we know of His redemption, that we know of His particular glories in Christ. And if you've been awakened to those realities, then the place where that is satisfied is in Scripture. It's in Scripture. Now, I just want to make one point on this. One foundational point, passage, and then uh, make a few comments before we come to the table. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, he says this. Now, he's, he's writing, as you know, where are the scribes, where is the wise man, so forth, that God's made foolish their message. And he says, but you are different. To you, that message of Christ crucified that others thought was foolish, that they rejected as they inferior to human wisdom. You, he says, in fact, saw in that message, saw in what men call the foolishness of God, the message of salvation. And a message in which your soul longed for the hope and the forgiveness and the glory and the grace that it offered. In this message to the awakened heart, he says, Christ became to us wisdom from God. As opposed to the wisdom of man. Righteousness, as opposed to our own righteousness. Sanctification and redemption. That's what the message of the gospel, when it came to you with power, if you know Christ, then when you heard and you read scripture, all of those things, it resonated in your heart with all of those things. Christ became wonderful. Christ became glorious. Christ became everything that you wanted. He became what your soul desired and and there's a dissatisfaction with everything else. And he says, we speak a wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age or the rulers of this age who are passing away. God's wisdom in a mystery. And he says many wonderful things here, but then he says this. And he's speaking here, well, he says in verse 12, he says 12, 1 Corinthians 2. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Here it is. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And here his focus primarily is on scripture, this new covenant revelation. These are words from the Spirit of God, the Spirit who searches the depths of God, the Spirit who has called you to faith, the Spirit who is maturing you, the Spirit who is revealing the mind of Christ. And it's coming to you and it comes to us in words that a natural man, he says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And so connecting that here with Peter is this, that if someone has been born again, they are of entirely new spiritual nature. You have totally new spiritual desires, spiritual thoughts, spiritual longings, spiritual hopes, spiritual joys, spiritual instructions, spiritual convictions. 
All of that is new. That's part of regeneration. And so the word of God is no longer something that is stale. It's no something, not something that is a closed book. It is the living word of God, which he just said in verse 23. The living and the enduring word of God. Scripture is, and the knowledge of Christ is for a believer, strengthened, stirred, instructed by the word of God, by the word of God. And only those who have the spirit of God can know that. Only those who have the spirit of God can know that. It is, one said, what is calculated for faith. The spiritual reason of men and for such who have their spiritual senses exercised, it is spiritual drink and made up of spiritual things and suited to a spiritual man. And let me make this comment on this then. That Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, cuts here then to the essence of spiritual life, the very heart of sanctification. That's what Jesse's talking about in Sunday school. It is this. The very heart of sanctification is this. And think of this as we come to the table. It is to long for more of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of God and our salvation in Him. That's the idea. To long for more of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of God and our salvation in Him. This is eternal life that you might know Him, the only true God, and what? Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That's eternal life. This absolutely then sets the focus and identifies the motivation of our spiritual lives and discipline. Let me put it this way. Church attendance, prayer, Bible reading and memorization, reading faithful books about the Bible, our service in the church and every other spiritual discipline and discipline of the spiritual life is not religious duty. It's not law-keeping legalism. It's not a checked box of our spiritual life. Every discipline and pursuit of the spiritual life is to know and to love and to serve Jesus Christ. That is the end. That's the goal. Everything else is a means to that end. It means when we read and study and listen to our Bibles, it's because we long to see the glory and the wisdom of God unfolding in His plan of redemption, unfolding in the accomplishment of that redemption in Christ, telling us all about it. We read and study the Scriptures so that we can learn and see and think rightly about God, rightly about ourselves, rightly about our world and how we are to live in it. That's why we read Scripture. It's not a duty. We pray because our hearts are driven to wrestle with God, to confess our sin, to seek from Him peace, to seek from Him wisdom, to seek from Him forgiveness, to seek from Him joy, to seek from Him courage, to seek from Him guidance, to seek from Him strength, to walk in righteousness. Why do we pray? Because our hearts compel us to pray to pursue God for all of those ends. Because we've been awakened to Him. Because our hearts long for Him. We long for the pure milk. And all of that is revealed and accomplished by God through His Word. Why do we attend church? Because it's here that we receive the benefit of encouragement, of example of others, instruction, accountability, and service to and from the gathered people of God. It's in the church that the Spirit of God has gifted His people to exercise, energized by Him, their abilities to minister to one another as the body of Christ. That's why we attend church. That's why we're here. It's where the ordinances that we're going to remember in just a couple of minutes are practiced 
And we have the regular reminders of the call to holiness, the regular reminders of the promises of Christ, the regular reminders of the foundation of our salvation and our hope together in Him as His body. So this is the end. This is the heart of sanctification. We are to long for the pure milk, you could say, of the Word, but really it is the pure milk of the Gospel that reveals Christ and His salvation and God's glory in Him. And so that's what he says. So that you may grow in respect to salvation. That is grow in respect. That is grow in the knowledge of, the experience of, faith in, all of that. It could be simplified this way. To grow in respect to salvation is to grow in order to know and live consistent with the realities of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is true of all who have tasted God's kindness in him. So this is the fruit then of the gospel. That we love the brethren. And we love one another fervently from the heart. At least that's what we seek. That's our goal. That's what we aim towards. And that we long for everything that will produce spiritual growth. And we remove everything from our lives as we search our hearts for anything that is a hindrance to this longing for Christ. Anything that's a hindrance to our love for Christ and for one another. And as we come to the table primarily to rejoice in what God has accomplished for us in Christ, we also come to examine ourselves and to remove anything and ask him to help us see anything that is hindering this work of God in our hearts. Why? So that we might know him, might have joy in him, we might love one another, we might be more faithful to him as we leave and we go into the world. So as we come to the table, take a few minutes, the men will come forward. Kathleen, There she is. Kathleen will be playing the piano. So just take some time to spend with the Lord, to meditate, to prepare your heart as the men hand out the elements, and then we'll celebrate the table together.